0: The last page has been turned on my most recent read, and I am still processing what I have just read, because wow, and possibly not in a good way. This week we marked reaching the halfway point in the year, we had the longest day, and in the UK at least, we've been enjoying some incredible hot and sunny weather. It is finally summer, guys. which I have been enjoying accompanied by more than a few books. I figured that this made it the perfect time to do a special episode about one of my favourite genres, because this year alone there have been some amazing releases, and if you're looking for a recommendation or two, then this could help. This week I have managed to add a few new books to my shelves, and also placed a number of pre-orders I am not ashamed of my ordering, including Iron Flame, the sequel to Fourth Wing. Find out what I thought of that one by giving that episode a listen. I have also ordered a couple of much-anticipated books in the genre I'm going to be talking about today, which is, of course, mythology retellings and adaptations. And believe me when I say Over the last decade or so, there have been a lot. I'm probably not going to cover all of them. I will be sticking to my honest and spoiler-free rule. So though many of these retellings stick to the path of the original myths they are about, I won't be spoiling them for those of you who aren't familiar, because not everybody sat down and devoured mythology books like I did as a kid. All of that means, in an indirect way, it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish. Join me today as we sail off to find the Golden Fleece, start a ten-year war to save our reputations, or simply bide our time to get revenge on a careless, murdering husband. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit long-term depression sufferer and ex-coffee addict. I'm still really proud of that. It's been a year and I'm still going strong. Join me on my journey through my ever-growing to-be-read pile and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. I know that I've told tale before, but it bears repeating as it is the very reason why I've always had a fascination for mythology. Whether Greek, Roman, Egyptian, Celtic, Norse or anything else, yes the list is very long. There are so many different deities in the mythological world and every tale is fascinating. I attended a small village Church of England primary school back in the Late seventies and early eighties, there were about two hundred children in the whole school. Yes, a rarity in these days. And once you reached junior school age, eight and above, you did two plays during the school year. At Christmas, it was a large musical or large by our scheme, and in the summer, it was a smaller but no, well, less organised production. The first year I was old enough to do these plays, Miss Ayres announced we were doing something called the Trojan War. Well, okay, what's that? Thought pretty much everyone in the class. And then we were told the story of Helen and Paris, and how romantic and horrible their love ended up being. Not sure it was a suitable lesson for eight and nine-year-olds, now I think about it. But anyway... We started reading the very basic script, and then the casting was underway. I was cast in the role of crazy Cassandra, who told people the future was, but was cursed to never be believed. Of course, they didn't go into the intricacies of why Apollo had gifted her with this particular curse. You just don't tell an eight-year-old that Cassandra was a priestess of Apollo, and as such had promised to be chaste. And when Apollo offered her the gift of prophecy, if she would only gift him with her virginity, she said no. So he twisted the gift and made it so that she would know the truth and no one would believe her. Anyway, I have never forgotten flailing about on the stage with my hair, flopping around like a mad halo as I warned my family that their son Paris would be the end of Troy. And it was this that really started my love of mythology, because it sounded way more interesting than everything else. Fast forward not even a decade and I was introduced to the first in a series of female retellings by an author who has now earned herself an unfortunately dark reputation courtesy of stories that I am not going to go into. Here I guess I should say that I am going to separate art from artist as I want to talk about The Firebrand by Marion Zimmer Bradley. For all her faults... Again, not going to go into all of that, Zimmer Bradley was one of the first authors I discovered that wrote mythological retellings from the female perspective. The Firebrand, first released in 1987, is a fantasy tale about Cassandra, Princess of Troy. We learn of her life as the bright child compared to her beautiful older sister Polyxena and her handsome and accomplished brother Hector. Though Paris, the abandoned and rediscovered son, is her twin, they aren't at all close and this lack of bond is even clearer as time goes by and she fails to convince her parents or anyone else in her family that they are in danger, especially when Paris returns to Troy with his new bride, Helen, his reward for telling Aphrodite that she was the most beautiful goddess. The story is told completely from Cassandra's perspective. We get her story from childhood, through the whispering of snakes in her ears, to the Trojan War. Anyone who knows the story of Troy knows how things ended for the house of Troy and all its inhabitants. Cassandra was a victim of Clytemnestra's wrath when Agamemnon returned from his victory, and she killed both of them. The Firebrand does for Cassandra what other books have done for other female characters in the tales of Homer, Ovid and Euripides. I do wish that there were more books that wrote about characters on the Trojan side of the war. That's not to say there aren't some. However, characters such as Hecuba, her daughters Cassandra and polyxena and her daughter-in-law Andromache tend to be more side characters than main Depending on the origin myth you're reading, Hecuba is either the daughter of kings, gods or Amazons, which would make for a really interesting tale. Andromache, Hector's wife, was a daughter of Thebes and ended up the captive of Achilles' son after witnessing his father dragging her husband around the battlefield after his chariot. And then her own son was thrown over the walls of Troy to ensure he was never going to seek rare vengeance for the death of his father. Yes, we've already established that some Greek myths are more than a little bit brutal. I can't help thinking that the reason Troy's women are still mostly footnotes is because everyone knows the sacking of their city led to their ultimate and quick demise and every retelling or every version of these myths, no matter which origin version you read, end with very much the same outcome. It's been a good decade or more since I read The Firebrand, for no other reason than I go through cycles. The Trojan War is a massive part, however, of most Greek myths. Just a few weeks ago, I spoke with Luna McNamara about her book, Psyche and Eros. And as we both said then, all roads in Greek myth seem to lead back, in some way or another, to the Trojan War. Sometimes it's just a mention of something they've heard, as in Psyche and Eros. In other books, it's the catalyst for events, as in Clytemnestra, The Song of Achilles, Circe, Ithaca, Electra, The Silence of the Girls, and For the Most Beautiful, among many others that have been written in the last decade or so. Now I've mentioned it, I should probably talk about it. It's one of my favourites, though not my favourite. The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller was originally released in 2012, at least in the UK. I have to be honest, I can't believe it's been over a decade since I read this book for the first time and cried over how beautifully written it was. The whole book is narrated by Patroclus, who was, at one point, a potential suitor presented to the beauteous Helen. When Menelaus is successful in winning her hand, Patroclus and her other suitors are forced to take a blood oath to defend the marriage at any point. Likely a foreshadowing of the events that are to come, (laughs) if you think about it, really. Following the unfortunate death of a noble in his father's house, Patroclus is sent to Pythia where he meets Achilles, the son of the king and his wife Thetis, a nymph. Achilles is somewhat dominated by his mother who is strong-willed and overbearing and she does her best to prevent her son from growing up and moving away from her physically and mentally. Unaware of Patroclus' own position as the son of a king, she is unhappy that her only son is spending time with a low-born boy and does her best to create a distance between them, because they are becoming closer than she is comfortable with. The pair grow ever closer, and the way that Patroclus describes his feelings for Achilles are so full of emotion. I said his name, I think. It blew through me. I was hollow as a reed, hung up for the wind to sound. There was no time that passed but our breaths. As the relationship develops, there are many things that come between them. The daughter of Lycomedes, Diadema, who Thetis forces Achilles to marry. Despite being married and his wife being pregnant, there is no denying the unbreakable bond between Patroclus and Achilles – Diademia is jealous and while pregnant she seduces Patroclus trying her best to create a gulf between the two that even Thetis had not managed to develop. Of course time is not on their side for Helen has run off with Paris to Troy and Menelaus is calling on the suitors who made a blood oath to join him in war against those who would dare to steal his wife from him. Though reluctant. Patroclus joins the war effort as a nurse and Achilles, his reputation as a skilled warrior already established, is persuaded to join and fight, though he knows that it could lead to his prophesied death. This is a moving and well-crafted book, and looks at the events in the original Homer tale from a very different perspective, merging multiple versions of this story, Achilles' possible motivations for suddenly going from pacifist standing on the sidelines to brutal bloodthirsty killer, and the aftermath. Of course, no talk of Madeline Miller's works would be complete without mentioning Circe, which remains my favourite. I've probably said that multiple times by now. Cersei has always known she was different, and after proving she has enough power to cause even the pantheon of gods on Olympus to fear, she is exiled to an island alone, to think on her mistakes and suffer for the deeds she may never commit. While living with her family, she is constantly rebuffed, So, while she is now isolated, she has the freedom she never had while living in the shadow of her far more accomplished parents and siblings. There are several scenes in this book that prove how isolated she is, how forgotten. Occasionally, someone will come to her island. Sometimes, they will be seeking temporary refuge. Others, they are people who have less than noble intentions. On one such occasion... Cersei is raped, and there is no one to offer her comfort or protect her. If Cersei provides readers with anything, it's an independent heroine who is forged through the complex and cruel situations inflicted upon her at the hands of people who are either physically stronger or simply more powerful than she is, and by equal measure afraid of the power she possesses. So... How exactly is Circe's story tied to the Trojan War? Well, the hero of Troy, or at least one of them, there are many, Odysseus, plays an important role in her story. In the original myth, she is the evil sorceress who turns all sailors who land on her deserted island into pigs. Kind of appropriate in many ways, especially when you consider her previous experience. In Miller's version, she is seduced by Odysseus on his journey home from the war, which takes ten long, hard years, though I personally think he's been hamming it up, and bears him a son who is destined to kill his father, a fact that causes the goddess Athena, his champion, to threaten Telegonus's life. And of course, as with a lot of myths, it doesn't necessarily end up good for anyone. I don't think that I need to go into the details of Clytemnestra by Costanza Cassati, as I did an entire episode about this book. The story of Clytemnestra is one that you really have to dig into the myths for, despite the fact that she has a rather large role to play in the Trojan War and its bloody aftermath. She suffers as the wife of Agamemnon and the sister of Helen, a witness to her husband's repeated betrayals, and suffering at his hands because of her sister's abandonment of his brother, Menelaus, for the handsome, youthful Paris. As with most myths, there are many different versions of Clytemnestra's fate. However, they do all have the same unfortunate outcome. This year, I have read not one, but two different books that tell the story of her life. Both took a very similar approach, and both were incredibly well written and moving. The most recent was Clytemnestra's Bind by Susan C. Wilson, which came out a few weeks ago and is definitely one I would recommend. Of course, the other is Clytemnestra by Costanza Cassati, which I did an episode on a few months ago. Electra by Jennifer Sane is another book that draws on the tales of Troy as a base Electra is the younger daughter of Clytemnestra and Agamemnon and definitely takes more after her father than her mother. This book is another that I have already reviewed in depth, so I will post a link to the episode in the notes. However, I can't not talk about it because Electra has a huge role to play in the fates of her parents, though primarily her mother Clytemnestra. It carefully delves into the emotions of Electra and Clytemnestra in Mycenae and Cassandra as Agamemnon's Trojan captive. It proves that they are all victims of the war in their own way, no one's safe. Clytemnestra loses a daughter when Iphigenia is murdered in front of her and Electra loses her mother to grief and then her father to her mother's anger. Saint also proposes what I have long thought, that though Helen's actions made a fool of her husband Menelaus, which rightfully makes him angry, her behaviour and the fact that she runs off with Paris when he is a guest in her husband's home is merely the excuse that the two brothers use in order to destroy a powerful and wealthy city that is considered a possible danger to their own positions as powerful rulers. I will admit now that Electra is not my favourite of the mythology retellings, as the story felt a little confused, and the three separate strands of the tale, told through the eyes of three different women Electra, Clytemnestra, and Cassandra, were confused and confusing. Though the story is compelling, I think that the trio of storylines took away from what it could have been. Of course, that's not to say it wasn't well written. Saint definitely has a way with words, it just wasn't a book that I personally enjoyed. I find the addition of multiple threads in her stories, a device that she has used in several of her works, including Ariadne, which was her first release, to be distracting and rather than enhancing the stories that she's telling, they tend to take away something from the character's experiences." I know that all the books I've mentioned so far have strong connections to the Trojan War. Psyche and Eros by Luna McNamara makes mention of this and provides us with a more logical link to Helen, Clytemnestra and their families. In this version of the story, Psyche is the daughter of Helen and Clytemnestra's sister and tales of the war reach Psyche even if she, as she is being held in Eros's secluded home, his captive and his beloved bride. Psyche was born to greatness. According to a prophecy delivered to her father before her birth, it is her destiny to defeat a monster. Trained by the great Atalanta with all the skills of many male heroes, she is confident that her fate will mean she is free of the expectations other women in her circle have to live up to, like her cousin Iphigenia. Psyche is an adventuress. She doesn't want to accept her lot as a princess, even when it comes calling and her parents, especially her father, start to plan her future as the wife of a powerful ally. She is understandably resentful, having been given so much freedom for so long, but as a princess of Mycenae, she must conform. When fate comes calling, though, she must answer, and this starts her on the path to her true destiny. Of course, she doesn't realise that the monster she will be battling with is the gods themselves, specifically one incredibly resentful and jealous goddess of love. One of the things that I love about Psyche and Eros is the story of the origin of the gods. There are so many different stories that tell of how Zeus came to power how his mother saved him from being consumed by his power-hungry and jealous father, Cronus, by sending him away and feeding her husband a rock in swaddling. For Cronos wanted to prevent history from repeating itself, as he'd killed his own father to achieve power. When Zeus defeated his father and saved his siblings, Demeter, Hestia, Hera, Hades and Poseidon, they became the first six of the new Olympic pantheon, Zeus gave life to Ares, Artemis, Athena, and Hephaestus with his wife, sister, Hera, Persephone with his sister Demeter, and many others with his multiple mistresses, both willing and unwilling, including Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Eros is usually thought of as the son of Aphrodite and Ares, and often depicted as a somewhat mischievous, winged and handsome young man, with a bow and arrow. McNamara's version refers to the original version of the myth that has been mostly lost beneath the newer ones. Eros is a primordial god, present at the beginning of life and creation. He is the origin of love and lust, but has little to no understanding of it and its consequences. The brother of Gaia, he is spared when Uranus is killed by Kronos, and overlooked when Zeus repeats the cycle and kills his own father. But his position is usurped by Aphrodite, Zeus's daughter. This power play between Aphrodite and Eros has an important role in Psyche and Eros' love story, especially the one told by McNamara, in that without Aphrodite's interference due to her jealousy and determination to show that she is the one in charge, angry at Eros's continued rebellion against her position in his existence, both of their lives would move much more smoothly. If you love a book that is part origin myth and part complicated and tragedy-filled love story, then this is definitely one you should pick up. This retelling gives Psyche more strength and autonomy than she is usually afforded, Making for a very interesting and different interpretation of the original myth. Feminist retellings of Greek myth have become an incredibly popular genre over the last few years, as I've already mentioned, and that doesn't look to be changing anytime soon. I've only mentioned a few books here, but there have been so many some of gods and monsters like The Shadow of Perseus by Claire Haywood that studies the tales of the hero Perseus, who is known primarily for his heroic slaughter of Medusa, the Gorgon. This story twists the tale, showing him as a spoilt boy who kills a defenceless pregnant woman who is less of a monster than her killer. Haywood's novels strip the myths of their magic and mysticism, thus humanising the heroes and monsters even more to the point that the monsters are simply nasty or misunderstood human beings. Natalie Haynes has written a number of retellings, from A Thousand Ships about the Trojan War from an all-female perspective, to Stoneblind, the story of Medusa. A Thousand Ships has been on my reading list for literal years, and as I really do want a tale from the perspective of the women of Troy – Perhaps I probably shouldn't be putting it off as much as I have been. Of course, the title is taken from the Christopher Marlowe quote, The Face That Launched a Thousand Ships, from his version of Faustus, which I have read. I had to read it for my degree, actually. It was not as good as the Goethe version. Odysseus' wife Penelope is always remembered as the woman who weaved patiently while her husband was off sailing around the seas after being at war for years. In fact, he's gone for over 17 years. She is the example of patience and strength. And in Ithaca by Clare North, we get to see how she manages to not only maintain peace while her husband is away, making his name even greater... But also ensures that the city doesn't descend into a bloody war that will destroy everything she loves. I have read a lot of retellings, but for every one I've read, there are probably two more on the shelf in the bookshop or on my TBR waiting for me. In fact, I've ordered four such books in just the last week. There is something so vivid, so colourful about these myths that however they're retold, whether it's a story carried into the modern world like No Season But The Summer by Matilda Lacer, which brings Persephone and Demeter into the present day with all its natural issues such as climate change and building on all our green land, or a power shift revealing the quiet and seemingly accepting wife, mother and queen, to be a woman seeking vengeance for innumerable wrongs against her and those she loves, as in Clytemnestra by Constanza Casati. This year sees the release of a number of new retellings and adaptations, many of which I admit I have already ordered. These include Girl Goddess Queen by B. Fitzgerald, An interesting take on the story of Persephone and Hades, which gives the tale a romantic comedy twist and portrays our unfortunate heroine as a woman in charge of her own fate. Perhaps she wanted to live in the underworld. For most people, myself included, Hercules is the zero to hero thanks to Disney's 1997 animated film. However, Phoenicia Rogerson's interpretation of Hercules and his abilities in Herc, much like Haywood's stories of Perseus, gives the reader a completely different perspective on who this hero is. Rogerson's Hercules is human with human frailties, and therefore makes mistakes that he must pay for. At times, these errors have a somewhat comedic bent – However, the underlying message is that he's confident in his abilities and his confidence turns him into something almost subhuman. He is unable to control the strength he has been given and the fact that by purely existing he has given Hera something to be angry about means that nothing he does is without consequence, mostly negative and always for someone else. The bodies pile up very quickly in Herc by Phoenicia Rogerson. If Greek mythology isn't your thing, what about Chinese? There are quite a few of those available too, especially released in the last few years, including books such as She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan and its sequel He Who Drowned the World, which comes out later this year. Then there's Daughter of the Moon Goddess and Heart of the Sun Warrior by Su Lin Tan. And of course, Spirits Abroad by Zen Cho, Song of Silver Flame Like Night by Emily Wen Zhao, which has a stunning cover and is a beautifully told tale. And Her Radiant Curse by Elizabeth Lim. If you want something a little less dragons and spirits and more swords and sorcery, then what about the stories of King Arthur, Avalon, Morgana Le Fay, and The Round Table? These include, but are certainly not limited to, Morgan Is My Name by Sophie Keach, which I actually have on my TBR right now, Gwen and Art Are Not in Love by Lex Croucher, or perhaps The Legend Born Duology by Tracy Dion. Which takes the stories of Arthur to an American high school. An interesting interpretation, which I really do need to actually get off the bottom of my TBR. This week has been absolutely manic. There's a lot going on in my everyday life, but that has meant escaping into books when I should probably be sleeping. I have managed to clear a fair few novels from my net galley shelf added a few new ones, and definitely purchased a number to add to the TBR for future reading. Of course, next week is going to be as busy, if not absolutely frantic. My boss and most of the team are on holiday, but I am still determined that I will be picking up a few books that have been staring at me from the shelves with sad eyes. Yes, I am personifying my books. I can't help imagining them with personalities. Right now, I can't. I look at Fourth Wing and it's staring rather smugly off the shelf where it's sitting next to Dragonfall, knowing that I want to reread it before I pick up the other book. I am currently waiting for a delivery of a few more books that I've ordered, including a brand new series. Well, it's not actually brand new. It came out in 2016 that I found while doing some research for this episode. And the brand new paperback copy of the latest Robert Thorogood, Death Comes Marlowe, which I am really looking forward to reading, but I also can't wait to see the ducks that are on the sprayed paperback edge. Despite this, I can honestly say I won't say no to recommendations. Even though my TBR is a considerable size and continues to grow at an exponential rate, I think my books are breeding on the shelves. I don't want to restrict myself. So if you have any recommendations, whether it's for books you've read or books you just want to hear me talk about in my spoiler-free, honest way, send them on over. I'm always interested in being introduced to new books and authors. You can send me an email at beingbookishpod at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram and I will be sure to check it out. Don't forget, if you want to hear about new releases and other books I've read – And keep up with my reviews. You can sign up for my newsletter on my website, beingbookish.co.uk. I know it's been a few weeks for those of you who are subscribed. I've had a lot going on. I'm going to catch up with it this weekend. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family? And please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any of the other podcatchers where you listen. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore and on Instagram at beingbookishpod, or you can check out my website, beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week, as I actually have a number of books to read, and with more books arriving, I need to start making an effort to read through my TBR. So until next time, this is me saying farewell.